Welcome to Liquidity. This is Doug Clinton, partner at Loop Ventures. I'm joined by my partner, Gene Munster. And on Liquidity, we talk all things related to venture liquidity, including IPOs, direct listings, secondaries, and more. And so last week, we published our 2020 predictions. This is something we do every year. And I think last year, we made seven predictions. And I think, Gene, we got four out of seven, right? That's correct. Four of the seven we gave thumbs up to. I think we were close on a couple of the other ones, but we're hard critics. And one of the big ones we got right was Apple as the top performing FANG stock. We're actually going back to the well. That's one of our top predictions this year, too. But we're making a prediction for 2020 that this is the year that direct listings really start to become this mainstream thing. We saw Slack go out in 2019. We've obviously had a lot more talk about direct listings over the past three months. It's one of the reasons we started this podcast. So, Gene, what do you think it will take for direct listings to really become mainstream and for us to hit our prediction in 2020? Well, I think there's enough momentum behind the theme for us to hit that prediction to expect at least three in 2020. And we've got Airbnb and DoorDash as likely candidates. And there's enough unicorns out there that should be an achievable target and up year in terms of the number of direct listings. Then there's the question about when does direct listings become commonplace? If you think about three or four direct listings, they'll probably be probably in the order of... Uh, maybe 30 tech-somewhat-related IPOs next year, it's still relatively small. And so I think there's enough momentum to answer your question, given what we've seen so far in 2019 around direct listings and just the concept around some of the benefits for it that we can hit that target. The bigger question about how do we get to these being commonplace and I think this primary shares uh, the ability for a direct listings or a class of direct listings that allows primary sale so companies can actually raise money, not just employees selling stock. I think that's going to be a pivotal moment. And that took a little step forward and then a little step back in the last month. And I think just having Airbnb potentially, it seems like they're the most likely one to go out and do a direct listing this year. I think just having them do that and lend more credibility to the process, I think will be a really huge step forward. And I agree with you. I think having a mechanism to raise capital as part of a direct listing will also be important. Although I do still think that because there's so much money in the private markets, and I think we're seeing a lot of large hedge funds start to do these sort of pre-IPO rounds, I do think that that might not be a huge barrier. And I think if you think about a company like DoorDash, Airbnb, it seems like they've got plenty of cash to go and do a direct listing if they wanted to do one next month. But DoorDash, because of how quickly they're burning cash, it seems like they probably will have to go back to the market, raise more capital before they do their direct listings. They might kind of run into that roadblock. And we'll see how they deal with that and what the valuation is at that round going into a direct listing. What do you think the market, thinking of those rounds in particular, Gene, the pre-IPO rounds, maybe six months ahead of an IPO, what do you think investors are going to look for in companies that they deploy capital to? And really, what kind of return do you think they're going to want? Because we see these 20% IPO pops. You have to imagine that investors that are investing now six months ahead of what used to be the IPO, they're going to want to see at least a 20% return on their money or more. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it is that post the you know, that single day pop is less likely, but I think an investor that is investing within a year, the expectation is for 25%. 
Some of them was obviously will be lower, some will be higher, but they want to shoot for that 25% kind of one-year hurdle, given there are uncertainties in terms of how companies trade once they're public. And I think it's important that investors think, private investors, the ones invested in that last round, start not to bank on that first day pop, but just essentially a markup from where they, not even a markup, but it'd be a realized gain at that point from where they invested in. I've started to think of the rounds ahead of a direct listing in particular is almost this weird form of like extended underwriting where like in a traditional IPO, your investment bank or your consortium of banks actually buys your shares at a agreed upon price. That's the IPO price. And then they sell them to their clients. And the underwriting discount is what the banks pay. But it feels like when a fund or a group of funds comes in and puts money into one of these companies ahead of a direct listing, they're sort of almost acting as the underwriters where they're taking on risk, plus they have some incremental time risk now before there is liquidity and they can sell shares post the direct listing. And then whether they sell shares or not on the open market, they've got some sort of a quote-unquote fee, if you were thinking of it as underwriting or just their markup, as you said, on kind of the capital gain that they have from holding the shares. So it's just interesting to think about where the sort of monetization opportunities shift to and how you can think about those as direct listings become more prominent, what that looks like. I think it's a fun thing to think about. And one of the benefits too of doing a direct listing that I think is really important is that we always talk about the window for traditional IPOs and whether the market's kind of willing to accept and be open to accepting new tech issues. With direct listings, because you're sort of accepting a market price, meeting buyers and sellers, I actually think the window becomes less and less relevant, but I do think sentiment is still generally important. So heading into 2020, what's your sense on public market sentiment around tech right now? It's positive. And if you think about what we see in the market around what happened kind of in December, there's a lot of noise in how December typically trades just because the buy side is trading around positions for either they want to mark a certain name in their portfolio, take one out or do some tax trading. So there is some noise in it. We just have a couple days of trading in 2020, and it seems encouraging. We didn't see a sell-off where still some of these companies are still marking all-time highs. I think that that first step, first read is important, and I think that is a positive message. Uh, would agree with the comment that the window is slightly more open when it comes to direct listings, but at the end of the day, those sellers want to sell into a good market. And so as the market is higher, that's going to obviously promote higher prices and more likely more companies will either go public through IPO or direct listing. One thing about sentiment is it feels like when we were talking a month ago on the podcast, there was a lot of discussion about profitability and companies that have a proven pathway to profitability. And then we had Uber and Lyft talk about trying to get to profitability sooner. And that sort of trickled down to the private markets. Do you think anything has changed around how people are thinking about profitability? I mean, the market changes quick. It's only been a month, but we were just talking about Tesla before the podcast. Tesla's up almost, I think, 40% in December. It's a company that has shown profitability, but they're not a sustainable company on an ongoing basis. And they're one that's still, I think, in this process of sort of blitz scaling and really trying to own the market for EVs that's so huge. So, Looking at what's happened with Tesla, Uber's come back a little bit, Lyft not so much. 
Do you think that the mindset around profitability has changed in just these last few weeks? One size does not fit all in post Uber, Lyft, and WeWork. I think that uh, naturally we felt that this path to profitability was the size, and that's going to apply to most companies. But uh, let's just focus in on the Tesla story, which is important because it's uh, not a profitable company. It will be, but it is still working towards that. But it's even beyond just kind of the last month, uh, plus 35% movement in the stock. The stock is up well over 100% in the last six months. And that was going on while all this negativity was happening with Uber, Lyft, and WeWork. I think it kind of got lost in just the volume around those other listings. But the takeaway is for select companies, if they have a powerful enough insight into an undeniable truth, and I put electrification and autonomy in that camp of undeniable truths, and that being a segment that you can invest in and know that it in fact will happen. There's no guesswork around whether or not it's going to come to fruition. I think that the insight here is that ultimately those companies, they do get a pass. And let's a little bit more about what's going on with Tesla is that the impressive part has been around the demand side. There's three parts to the Tesla story, demand, manufacturing, and profitability. And the demand piece took a step up, the third sequential increase, 112,000 deliveries for December. The street was at 106,000. And there's still this debate about are consumers ready for EV? And clearly the takeaway is that they are ready. So that box gets checked. And that's kind of the old way of thinking about it was this demand there is this a big addressable market. And second is their blitzscaling around their manufacturing process. If you think about what they've done in with their Shanghai Gigafactory, they did it in one year. It's been well-documented what they've accomplished there from breaking ground to delivering vehicles in a year. But it is unprecedented. You have to give them a lot of credit for doing that. And I think what it says to me is investors recognize that demand there and building the proper infrastructure to capitalize on that demand, in this case, Shanghai, then they're willing to start to think more freely about what these valuations of these companies can be. Tesla is currently an $81 billion market cap. It's up a lot, but it's still small relative to other tech companies. Netflix, for example, is $145 billion market cap. I think Tesla should be valued higher than Netflix. Maybe Netflix needs to come down to $70 billion. I don't know. So I think there's a lot to be taken away. And the bottom line is, if you've got an edge on an undeniable truth, investors will give you a pass on profitability. And impression on the, the point around Netflix and Tesla, you're saying Tesla should be valued higher than Netflix. Not necessarily today, though, right? I mean, you're talking about over time, Tesla has a much bigger, it seems like, market opportunity than Netflix does. Right. And I think that the market should recognize that. I think to say what you said, kind of in my own words, is that when you have these companies that are playing in really open-ended markets at the very beginning of their growth curves, the market just doesn't want to miss them and they'll pay up for them. Tesla, I think, benefited from that. The market returning to them over the last six months, as you said, 100% increase in the stock price. And I think really, like if you think about investor psychology, 
on a very basic level, no investor wants to miss the next FANG stock, right? Or the next group of stocks that become the new FANG, if that ever happens. And I think there's only a handful of companies that probably have any right to lay claim to that. Tesla is one of them. Maybe some of the companies that are in the private market still, Airbnb perhaps is one that maybe fits into that bucket too. But Investors, I think, will always come back to those stocks that end up becoming these overwhelming market leaders. And, you know, I think that's maybe a little bit why we've seen some of the trouble with companies like Pinterest or an Uber or a Lyft, because maybe those markets seem a little bit more limited. Maybe the competition between Uber and Lyft makes those markets seem a little bit more limited. But I agree with you. I think that ultimately, investors love good companies and great markets. And I think that despite all the noise after WeWork and some of the other things that have happened in the private markets, there's still a lot of opportunity to invest in these market-leading potential companies. Yeah, I think just to emphasize, that point gets missed in all the noise is that there are still companies that are going to be transformative that are going to create a lot of value for investors. So it's well worth uh, time to focus on some of those later stage companies. Definitely. This wasn't a prediction specifically that we made in our predictions for this year, but we always think about where are there opportunities to be contrarian and right? Like Howard Marks has this great framework that is, you can only make money in the markets when you're contrarian and right. If you're consensus and right, everybody else is making the same money. If you're wrong, you're not making money anyway. So if you think about how people are starting to look at the private markets and some of the valuations there, maybe some of these tech companies, and not to say that they're not overvalued, but to really extend the time frame you're thinking about valuing them on and looking at what's the bigger opportunity, that might be an area to be consensus and right going into 2020 for select companies, making sure you do the right work. But I think there's some opportunity there. Last point for the show, Gene, we teased this at the beginning. Apple is our 2020 top pick for the FANG group again. We were right in 2019 about it. I think you have to tell everybody why we're going back to the well. What's the quick pitch on why Apple should be the top pick again this year? When we thought about which companies to select, initially Apple was at a disadvantage just because it had a move in 2019. And there was a sense internally, like, let's just take that move and be happy for it and find a different company to stand behind that didn't perform as well in 2019. Apple was the top pick despite that, I guess, initial bias not to have it. And the reason is that 2020 sets up for on the fundamental side and what's happening on the multiple side to benefit them and to be the top performing FANG stocks. So on the fundamental side, you have what will be likely five new phones. And typically in a cycle, Apple will have three new phones. That's the way it's been in the last couple of years. So there'll be more number of phones. A couple of them are likely going to be more kind of mainstream price, which may fractionally increase their global market share, which is something that they have struggled. So that's a positive. The second on the fundamentals is wearables. AirPods and watch have gotten a lot of attention. The company doesn't give a lot of details on it, but we can back into how that segment is doing. It's small today. It's 8% of total revenue. But based on our math is that that segment has accelerated from call it 40% growth at the end of 2018 to probably 65% growth at the end of September. I think it's evidence of an undeniable truth that wearables are going to become part of our everyday tech experience. And Apple's got a great play with that, with the hearables and AirPod and with watch. 9% of iPhone owners use an Apple Watch, so it's still 
a nascent market. So I think there's room around that. And then the comps are really easy because of what happened in China around iPhone last year. It makes some easy comps. So that's the fundamental side. Importantly, on the multiple side, is that we believe investors in 2020 are going to increasingly view Apple's combination of hardware, software, and services as in line, comparable to the stability of a typical internet business or SaaS business. Previously, hardware businesses got lower multiples because there's been a track record of hardware companies doing well and then not doing well. And I think that what we're seeing is just this combination that Apple's put together, the hardware almost acting, having visibility, like software as people upgrade over a three-year period, for example. I think that that is going to build some confidence with investors in this year and ultimately yield a multiple that is similar to Google or Facebook. If you apply Facebook's current multiple on current earnings, that would imply Apple stock at 400, which is ambitious over the next 12 months. If you apply a consumer staples multiple, similar to Google or Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, that would imply a $350 stock. And we felt that a move from 300 to 350 would justify the top performing bank stock in 2020. Great. So you think even at what's that a 15% move roughly? You think that might take the crown given the year we just had in Fang? Yeah, well, I think a 20%, uh, we generally think of this as a kind of a 20% move this year. I think a 20% move in Fang in 2020, I think that would be enough to take the crown. But in the case of Apple, I think there's a legitimate, reasonable, level-headed case that this should be $400. And in that case, that gives us some more room that maybe 20% at the low end and could be more like 35%. All right. Well, we will check back in on that prediction in about 363 days and see how we do. I think that's all we have for today on liquidity. Thank you, Gene. And thanks for listening. 